Can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1? Acts chapter 1, we want to pick it up this morning in verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, the number of names was about 120 and said, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that the field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness of with us of his resurrection, and they proposed to Joseph called Barsabas, who was surnamed Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, I think it's safe to say that as a pastor, as I talk to people and, you know, just folks in our church or just meet people on the street and all and start talking to them and they find out I'm a, a pastor, I think the, the one issue that comes up more than any other issue that people are concerned about is how can I know the will of God for my life? I mean, that's where we all live, right? I mean, that's kind of where the rubber meets the spiritual road. You know, how can I know God's will for my life? You know, I mean, I've got these two options. Which way does God want me to go with it? Who does God want me to marry? Uh, is it time for me to leave this job? Or does God want me to stick it out and stay in this job? Where should I put my kids in school? Christian, public, or should I homeschool? I mean... These are issues I think that every Christian wrestles with. Of course, the psalmist said in Psalm 40, verse 8, I delight to do your will, O God. And I think a lot of us can say amen to that. The problem is that we don't always know what God's will is in a given situation. And let's be honest, discerning God's will can oftentimes be a bit problematic and frustrating at times trying to determine, well, what is God's will in this situation? Now, there's a lot of confusion in this regard, and I see it as a pastor quite a bit. I mean, I've had people actually say to me that they didn't engage in certain activities because it was God's will that they didn't do those things. And I've had other Christians tell me that they did those very things because they believed it was God's will. I'll give you an example. Should your kids go to public school? There are Christians who are adamant. They believe God has said no Christian kids in public school. God has spoken. It's his will. Others say, well, I've prayed about it, and 
I believe God has told me to put my kids in public school. So these are issues that we all wrestle with. And, um, of course, the devil jumps right in, and he works in this regard. And so you don't have to read the morning papers very far before you realize that God's will, or at least what gets blamed for God's will, well, there's a lot of horrible and hurtful things that have happened in the name of God by people who believe they were acting on behalf of God. Now, we as true believers don't help matters much because sometimes we use terms that may give people the wrong idea. You know, who of us here hasn't used the phrase, well, I'm searching for the will of God, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm looking for God's will, trying to find God's will. And when we use phrases like that, we kind of give people, some people, the impression that we think God is kind of like this cosmic Easter bunny up in heaven who has kind of hidden his will on the earth. And it's our responsibility to kind of run around our whole lives trying to find what God's will is. And once in a while, God yells down from heaven, you're getting warmer, you're... Oh. <laughs> Ice cold, ice cold, that kind of thing. And, you know, it, it's, it's just a little bit confusing at times. Because of this, I think that some people want so badly to know God's will in their lives that they have come up with some creative ways in discerning God's will. Perhaps you've heard of this one. It's called the open window method of discerning God's will. You say, well, what is that? Well, that's where you put your Bible near an open window and let the wind blow the pages, and as the pages are blown in the wind, you just kind of reach over and stick your finger down, and then whatever verse your finger lands on, that's God's will. And so I heard about one guy who tried this, and the pages are flapping, he sticks his finger down and looks down, and here's what the verse said. Judas went out and hanged himself. (laughs) Well, that's not very encouraging, so he thought I'd try that again, and so reached out and put his finger down and looked down on the page, and this is what he read. Go and do likewise. (laughs) i got to try this once more. So the third time he tried, looked down, and the verse read, Whatsoever you do, do quickly. (laughs) As you can see, there are a lot of concepts and misconceptions that arise with regard to God's will. Now, because of it, and because there's so much confusion and even frustration uh, that comes as a result of trying to discern God's will, some people have actually given up on really ever trying to know what God's will is for their own life. Some people have just kind of given up on the whole process because there's so much confusion. And you hear people sometimes ask An honest but heartfelt question, you know, can I really know the will of God for my life? Does God even have a will for my life individually? You know, not every Christian believes that. As we're going to see in this study, there are Christians who believe that God does not have an individual will for your life. He's mapped out his general will in Scripture, and that's really it. And you're left to basically fend for yourself. I don't believe that. I don't believe that that's true. I believe that God does have a will for our lives individually and that he's not trying to play games with it or hide it. If God has a will, believe me, he will reveal that will if you are open and wanting to do his will. First of all, let me tell you what not to do 
when trying to determine God's will. The first thing you don't do is cast lots like the apostles did. Here in Acts chapter 1, we read how Peter correctly pointed out that the scriptures had foretold of Judas' betrayal and death, and how that the scriptures had said that his office was to be replaced. He was to, he was to be replaced with another. Peter rightly understood that. And so they went ahead and they chose two candidates, two disciples that had been with them from the very beginning, since the baptism of John to the time Jesus was ascended into heaven and taken from their midst. And they chose two guys, and then they brought these two guys before the Lord, and they cast lots to determine which of the two was God's man to replace Judas. And the apostles, and especially Peter, have taken heat from many commentators because of this practice. Uh, they feel like it was, it was totally wrong for the apostles to cast lots to determine God's will in this matter. But in all fairness to Peter and the other apostles and disciples, this was a very common technique used in the Old Testament for determining the will of God in a situation. In fact, Proverbs verse, uh, chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And if you realize that the church age hadn't technically begun at this point, it didn't start until chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, then these guys in, in some ways were still operating under the Old Testament economy. So we can't be too hard on them. You might be wondering, well, what is this casting of lots uh, what is this thing? Well, again, it was a, a, a technique that was very common in the Old Testament, not just among Jews, but among pagans. A lot of people used this method to determine the will of the gods or even the will of the God of Israel. What were these lots? Well, sometimes they were uh, small stones or pebbles. In fact, the Jews, uh, the high priest, uh, under the breastplate was a pocket called the ephod. And in the ephod, there was stored the Urim and Thummim. We're not sure what that was, but they were used to determine the will of God. And some believe that one was a black stone, one was a white stone. So you would ask God a question, do we go out to battle today against the Philistines? The priest would stick his hand in the ephod, pull out a stone. If it was white, it was yes. If it was black, it was no. We don't know for sure. But we do know that they would often cast lots that were pebbles or stones. Sometimes they would use small sticks to determine the will of God. And we we're not exactly sure how they did this when they were casting lots. It's interesting that the Hebrew verb that's attached to the lot, the casting, is sometimes the Hebrew verb that means to fall or to, um, uh, to uh, cast down or open up. The idea is that they kept these lots in some kind of a container. And when they wanted to know the will of God, they would open the container and they would literally cast the lots onto the ground, or as Proverbs 16, verse 33 says, they cast it into the lap of the person who was looking to find God's will. So that was one way or methodology of discerning God's will, the casting of lots. The other is one that the church, I think, has picked up on, many Christians, and that is laying a fleece before God. Now, again, I, I don't recommend this. I don't recommend this. Laying out a fleece before God to determine his will in a given situation. This has become, as I said, a popular method for discerning God's will, especially among charismatics uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. And of course, 
the whole practice comes out of the Old Testament from the story of Gideon. And you remember around, around uh, Judges chapter 6, Israel had turned its back on God, and so God allowed the Midianites to oppress them for a number of years. And it got so bad that the children of Israel cried out to the Lord to be delivered. And so God raises up a man named Gideon to do that very thing. And God calls Gideon to lead some of the men of Israel in the battle against the Midianites. Now, Gideon wants to make sure that God is really in this thing. And so one night he says, Lord, look, I'm going to lay a fleece on the threshing floor. And if it's your will that we go out to battle against the Midianites, then in the morning, let the fleece be soaking wet and the ground around it completely dry. And so the next morning, sure enough, they woke up and Gideon went to the fleece. It was soaking wet. They wringed out a whole bowl of water from it, but the ground around it was absolutely dry. So Gideon thinks, well, you know, I don't know all the dynamics involved with fleeces. Maybe they attract moisture. I don't know. So Lord, be patient with me. One more time, I'm going to just test you on this. Uh, tomorrow morning, let the fleece be dry, but the ground around it all wet. And so the next morning, that's a Exactly what happened. He gets up, and the fleece is completely dry, but the ground around it was soaking wet. And so Gideon realized it was God's will, and so he led the men of Israel in the battle, and God gave them victory. And because of this, many Christians have adopted the practice of laying a fleece before the Lord. Now, let me just say this. These methods were acceptable methods that God allowed in the Old Testament time, when his people's knowledge of him and his word was limited. And so God was patient, and God let them do some things back then that he really doesn't want us to do today because we have the whole word of God, the whole counsel. Jesus Christ, the fullness of God's revelation, has already lived and died. I mean, I let my toddlers do a lot of things I wouldn't let my teenagers get away with because they know better. And the same is true in the Christian life. It's interesting that after Pentecost and the Spirit of God was poured out and the church was born and they became Spirit-filled believers, never again did they use lots or anything else like that to discern the will of God. They simply let the Holy Spirit lead them directly. And we'll talk more about that as the study progresses. Let me just interject my own thoughts here for a second. I believe that the disciples got ahead of the Lord in Acts chapter 1. I really do. I think that they tried to make something happen before the Spirit of God was poured out and they were Spirit-filled, before the day of Pentecost had come, they tried to make something happen in the energy of their own flesh, in a sense. And we often do this, by the way. Many times we read something in the Word, and it's a pretty powerful principle, something that I really want to see in my life. And so we say, well, God, I've just read this powerful principle in your word. Therefore, I need to go out and make it happen in the energy of my flesh. Instead of saying, Lord, I've just read your word this morning and you spoke to me very clearly about a powerful principle that you had put there. Now, Lord, I want to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit to give me the grace to apply this into my life. But we all do that, don't we? We tend to rush ahead of God. And that's why we make so many mistakes, I think. And maybe this morning you're wrestling with a decision. And, and maybe you come to church and, and you really wanted to hear from God in some way. And you're thinking, well, Lord, I got these two job offers. Which one do I take, job A or job B? 
or I've got, you know, I feel like uh, uh, you want us to, to make a move, uh, but, you know, where do you want us to move to? I've got this place over here that we like. We've got uh, over here, this part of the country is nice. We wouldn't mind moving there. So, Lord, where do you want us to go? That kind of thing. But I think what we do is we limit God. It reminds me of the story in Numbers chapter 11. And you don't have to turn there, but you know the story. The children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness at this time. And God had been giving them manna every day, and they were getting tired of manna. And so they cried out to Moses and said, look, we're sick and tired of manna. We want meat. And so Moses came in before the Lord and said, Lord, the people are upset. They want Big Macs and they want, you know, they're, they're tired of the manna, Lord. And so the Lord said, all right, well, you go back and tell the people that I'm going to give them meat but not just for a day or two or five or 10 or 20. I'm going to give them meat for a whole month. So much so that it's going to be coming out of their nostrils. And Moses said, well, that sounds great, Lord. All right, what do you want us to do? You want us to kill all the flocks and herds we brought out of Egypt to satisfy their hunger for meat? Or should we fish the Red Sea dry? Because, you know, how are we going to do this otherwise? And God basically said to Moses, Moses, I've got more options than those, just those two. I mean, I'm God, remember? I mean, I have ways of doing things you have not even begun to think of. And so not long after, God caused quail to come flying into the camp of Israel by the thousands. The Bible says there were two cubits from the ground, about three feet in the air, right in the strike zone. Perfect for batting practice. And the children of the men of Israel grabbed sticks and they began to bat these quails all day, all night. And they piled them up, dried them, and made, you know, quail jerky. And, 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 I, and I know that that's what happened because verse 32 says, He that gathered the least gathered ten homers. So you can check that out on your own if you want. I'm just telling you what the word says. But let me why, tell you why I don't like laying a fleece before God, or what I call fleecing God. I don't like to fleece God because of two main reasons. First of all, it puts limits on God. Which one of these two job offers do you want me to take, Lord? See, God may have a third that you haven't even thought about. It limits God, number one. Number two, it's an effort on our part to put ourselves in control of the situation, and don't we love that, and force God to work on my timetable. Although Peter knew the word, to his credit, he knew the word, he was right in discerning that Judas needed to be replaced. I believe that he and the other disciples acted ahead of the Holy Spirit and chose two men limiting God, two good men, but they limited God, and then they tried to force God to act on their timetable. Okay, God, here are your two options. You pick one. We're going to cast lots right now. You've got to decide who you want. I purposely think that God had another man in mind. He wasn't ready yet. A man they never even thought about because at the time that they cast lots to replace Judas, Saul of Tarsus wasn't even a believer. But I believe with all my heart that Paul, was the man that God wanted 
to replace Judas. And in Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, we read that in the new Jerusalem, it's going to be built on 12 foundations, and each foundation is going to have the name of an apostle written on it. And I personally, it's my personal conviction, I don't believe Mattias' name or Matthias' name is going to be on one of those foundations. I believe it's going to be Paul. You say, well, do you have anything scripturally to back that up? Well, how about Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul said, years later, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but from the will of God. See, I believe Paul was God's man. But because they acted on their timetable and limited God, they chose the wrong man. That's why I don't like lots and laying fleeces. I think you can make a lot of wrong decisions using those methods. And so then the big question burning in your minds is, well, then how do I know the will of God for my own life? How can I know God's will for my life? You tell me what not to do, what can I do? Well, let me say this. It seems to me that before we try to understand how to discern or determine the will of God, we first need to define what we're talking about when we talk about God's will. Now, I want to do this today because if we don't, you're never going to get past the confusion. And let me just say this. When it comes to the term in the Bible, will of God, the theologians have determined or they have studied this and found that it's a term that has three different applications. There are three different kinds of God's will spoken of in the pages of Scripture. The first is the sovereign will of God. The second is the moral will of God. And the third is the individual will of God. Now, it's important that we understand what each is because the problem is, and much of the confusion comes because people don't understand the distinctions. And so what happens is they read passages that deal with the sovereign will of God And they can't figure out how a person can have an individual will. Or they apply these things, they misapply passages that deal with individual will to scriptures that deal with God's sovereign will, and it gets very confusing and leads to some bizarre theology. So we need to understand what the Bible is actually saying about these things. Let's start first of all with the sovereign will of God. What is the sovereign will of God? Well, this would be the will of God as it relates to his eternal plan for his creation. This world is moving in a direction toward a destination that has been determined by God before the foundation of the world. And from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22, verse 21, we see God's sovereign will for this world unfold to us through the pages of Scripture. And then we look at history and we see how God has fulfilled his will, how it has come to pass in the pages of human history. Even to the present day, we can't hardly pick up a newspaper without seeing God's will, his sovereign will unfolding for us even more as we read the morning paper and we see how many prophecies are being fulfilled right before our very eyes. This is God's sovereign will, folks. Let me give you just a few scriptures that deal with this kind of will of God's. 
Uh, it's, it, there are many. I'll just give you a few. Acts chapter 2. If you'd like to turn there, you can. Starting at verse 22. This is on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out. Uh, the disciples have had a very uh, dynamic experience. The Spirit of God has come upon them so powerfully, they now have cloven tongues of fire burning above each of their heads, and they began to speak with other tongues, praising God as God gave them, or the Spirit gave them utterance. This drew quite a crowd, as many Jews were in town from all over the known world for the Feast of Pentecost. They heard the mighty rushing wind like a tornado blowing through town. They kind of followed the sound until it brought them to where the disciples were. And these men heard the disciples all praising God in various dialects. And then afterwards, Peter stood up and preached his first spirit-filled sermon. It's dynamic. 3,000 men got saved, plus women and children. How much we need spirit-filled preaching today. But Peter started his sermon by saying, in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified, and put to death whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. Another one comes out of Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 36. And this is where God is prophesying to Israel that someday Messiah would come, establish a kingdom on the earth where Israel would be in peace and would enjoy their Messiah's presence in the kingdom age. And in verse 36 of Ezekiel 36, it says, Then the nations, God speaking, which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Matthew 25, verse 34 this is speaking of when Jesus returns to the earth and he separates those on the earth, believing from unbelieving, sheep from the goats, and he turns to the sheep and the king will say to those on his right hand, come you, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the earth. And so before God ever created the earth, he already knew what he was going to do. He was going to eventually establish a kingdom on the earth where Messiah would reign. God had purposed it, and God had performed it. And then finally, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul said these words, In him, in Christ, also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And again, what's in view in these verses is the sovereign will of God. It is ironclad, it is sure, and primarily it is rooted in his redemptive plan for mankind. To put it another way, nothing was going to stop Jesus from being born on this earth. Nothing was going to stop him from going to the cross and dying for our sins. Nothing was going to keep him in that tomb and prohibit him from rising from the dead. 
And nothing is going to stop the Lord from coming back to the earth someday to establish his kingdom. When it comes to the sovereign will of God, folks, you either get on board or the train runs over you because it's coming. People want to fight it. They want to deny it. They want to argue against it. You can do all those things. It's not going to change it. You can stand on a railroad track and you can watch the train coming, a freight train barreling down at 70 miles an hour, and you can turn your back and fold your arms and say, I don't believe it. It's not going to stop the train from running you down. Jesus is coming back. And all the signs point to soon. It's time to bow the knee and make him your Lord and Savior. On whoever falls on this rock, they will be broken. But whoever refuses to fall on the rock of Christ and be broken of their own will, the rock will someday fall on them and grind them to powder. They will be judged. So the sovereign will of God is not subject to human will or actions. In other words, there is nothing man can do to stop or to change God's sovereign will. And this is what God meant when he said, I have spoken it, I will do it. Now, that brings us to the second definition of God's will, the moral will of God. And God's moral will is found throughout the Bible. But among other places, the one that we probably think of the most when we think of his moral will is the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, God expresses his moral will, of course. He says, these things you shall not do. And then he says in other places, and these things you shall do. This is God's moral will. In the New Testament, the Greek word that usually is used to convey this is thelema. And it's a word that is translated will, but it's more emotional than it is volitional in its uh, definition. In other words, it literally means God's heart's desire. God's heart's desire. That's what his moral will is. It is God's heart's desire for the lives of all of his children. But listen to me. God's moral will, unlike his sovereign will, is not absolute and sure and written in stone. It is dependent upon our free will, whether we're going to obey what God has said or not obey. See, in the moral will of God, God expresses his heart's desire that we all as Christians live moral lives. But he doesn't force that on us. It's his desire, but we have to choose whether or not we are going to obey or disobey what God has said in this regard. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul the Apostle said, For this is the will of God. He's talking about the moral will of God. Your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That's God's will for all of his children. Do all of God's children abstain from sexual immorality? No, unfortunately not. I think of one person that stands out in our minds when we think about this is probably King David. David was called by God a man after God's own heart. He was the sweet psalmist of Israel. He was a man who really loved God, and yet he was not a perfect man. And we know the sordid details of his affair with Bathsheba, how one day, while her husband Uriah was away in battle, David seduced her and lay with her. He committed adultery with her. She conceived, and to cover his tracks, he eventually put a contract out on her husband and killed him. 
David had thought he had gotten away with this, but of course God sees everything, and so eventually God sent the prophet Nathan to David to confront him. After it came out what David had done, Nathan, speaking for God, said these words. He said, Thus says the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You hear the heart of God lamenting, don't you? David, why did you do that? Haven't I been good to you? Haven't I given you many blessings? I've given you the kingdom. David, if that wasn't enough, I would have given you more also to prove my love for you. Why have you done this thing? Why have you broken my heart in this regard? Is what God is lamenting. And so it's obvious that the moral will of God is not something that is absolute or ironclad or written in stone. It's up to us to choose whether to obey it or disobey it. That brings us finally to the one that we all really think about. It's the one that we are really referring to when we talk about knowing God's will for our own lives. It's what the theologians have called God's individual will or his will for individuals, you know, the specifics. I know from reading the word that God has prophesied that certain things were going to happen. Jesus was going to be born. He has been. Jesus was going to go to the cross. He has already. He was going to rise from the dead. He is going to come back someday to establish a kingdom. We know all that. The Bible tells us that that is the will of God. That's sure. That is written in stone. And yes, I also know that God has spoken to me generally about his will for my life. He wants me to lead a moral life and so on and so forth. But what I'm really concerned about, what I want to know is, what is his specific will for my life? I think that's where most of us are coming from. We talk about searching for or trying to find God's will. Let me say this again. God has a sovereign plan for this world. It is sure and absolute. But he also has a purpose for each of our lives in accomplishing that plan. His sovereign will is not subject to our will or actions, but we can choose whether or not we want to be a part of the sovereign work that he is doing in this world. You see, there are a lot of people who, again, are very confused on this issue. And they read verses that talk about God's sovereign will and so they take it to the extreme and say, well, you know, God's going to do whatever he's going to do. He's in control. We can't change anything. Why pray? Why send missionaries out? God's going to do what he's going to do. Maybe you've heard this position. There are people that believe that. And they'll tell you, don't even bother praying. Prayer doesn't really change anything. Oh, it may change you. It's good to be in God's presence, but only because it changes you. Not because prayer really changes anything. God's going to do what he's going to do. Well, I don't think the Bible teaches that. Because in the book of James, James said that the effective fervent prayers of the righteous accomplish great things. And God said in Ezekiel chapter 22, lamenting, he said, I sought for somebody in Israel who would stand in the gap on behalf of the nation and pray and intercede. 
that I would not have to judge the nation, but because nobody was praying, my judgment fell. Again, it sounds like God had leeway. It sounds like he was saying, look, in this matter, if Israel had been praying, I would not have brought judgment. So we have to try to combine and somehow put the sovereign will of God together with our individual will to come up with some kind of a theology that makes sense scripturally. I heard somebody explain it this way, and I'm going to use this to bring this to a close. Somebody described it like this. They said, the will of God is like an ocean liner sailing from London to, London to New York. The direction of the ship is set, and the destination is sure. This represents the sovereign will of God. However, on board, the passengers are moving about, deciding what to eat, where to go on board the ship, and what to do in the way of activities. That represents the individual will of man. I believe within God's sovereign will, the ocean liner moving in a direction, that's human history that is moving in the direction that God has foreordained in his sovereign will. But as human history moves in a certain direction towards a destination that has already been set by God before the foundation of the world, in that world we live and have choice. And much of it revolves around this issue and this main choice. Am I going to choose to live my life for God's glory or my own desires? That really is the bottom line. And I believe that God has given each of us the free will to make that decision for ourselves. Oh, Jesus is coming back. And the millennial kingdom is going to be established. And after that, the eternal state. Make no mistake about it. God has said it. He will do it. But as the world is moving towards that final culmination of things, we have a lot of leeway to make decisions that affect the people around us or decisions that will basically cause our, us to live our lives for ourselves alone. That's why next time I want to explore this a little deeper because I do believe God has got an individual will for our lives. Some don't believe that. I do. I believe that God wants to get involved in your individual life. To I don't know why Jesus would have said something like, every hair of your head is numbered if God wasn't concerned about the smallest details of your life. And why Peter would have said then in 1 Peter, cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares about you. And those anxieties happen to deal with the everyday issues of my life. But I don't want to leave you hanging like this, give you something to take with you to think about. We talked earlier about the Urim and Thummim, right? And how they were used in the Old Testament to discern the will of God. Harry Ironside, great Bible teacher who's with the Lord now, liked to tell this story. Let me just read it to you, and we'll close. The story is told of a young curate in the Church of England who was greatly helped in his understanding of the Scriptures by frequent conversations with an uneducated cobbler who was, nevertheless, well acquainted with the Word of God. On one occasion, when a friend of his, a young theologian, was visiting him, he mentioned this remarkable knowledge of the Bible which the cobbler possessed. 
the young theologue, in a spirit of pride, expressed a desire to meet him, saying he felt sure he could ask some questions which he would quite be quite unable to answer. Upon being introduced to the man in his little shop, the question was put, can you tell me what Urim, what the Urim and the Thummim were? The cobbler replied, I don't know exactly. I understand that the words apply to something that was in the breastplate of the high priest. I know the words mean literally lights and perfection, and that through the Urim and Thummim, the high priest was able to discern the mind of the Lord. But I find that I can get the mind of the Lord by just changing two letters. I take this blessed book, holding up the Bible, and by using and thumbing, I get the mind of the Lord that way. Good words. I think so often we as Christians are desperate to find the will of God for our lives individually. The problem is we're not taking the word of God and using and thumbing through it the way we should to know what God has already revealed to us. And I have discovered if you're not willing to do what God has already revealed in his word for your life, live morally and other things that he has said, chances are God will not lead you in the specific matters of your life because you don't have ears to hear what the spirit is saying because your heart is full of pride or carnality or something else. A good rule, a good rule for knowing God's will in your own life is what one man said when he said, if you want to know God's will in your life, he said, read the word and say to God, I will. Lord, everything in here, I will obey. And when you will to do God's will in that regard, he will make sure you get everything else you need to walk with the Spirit and in the Spirit the rest of your life. So may God help us to understand this rather large and somewhat complicated subject. But knowing God's will is so basic, I thought it might be good if we just spent a couple of weeks or so studying it, finding out there are ways that we could, things that we could learn from Scripture that will help us to discern God's will in our individual lives We'll see that as the study progresses. Father, we thank you so much for your word and how many people have died that we might have a copy today in our laps, in our own language. Father, forgive us for not using and thumbing through your word as we should. Give us a love for your word. Father, give us the grace to bathe ourselves in the word. It is your heart. It is your mind. And we want to have the mind of Christ, which only comes by filling our minds with the word of God. And when we have the mind of Christ, I think you will be able to lead our lives so much more easily and effortlessly. Thank you, Lord. We ask you to bless this study for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.